This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Throughout most of the year, we appreciate the redemption process unfolding before our eyes. The return of Jewish self-determination following nearly 2,000 years of exile, the land of Israel bearing her fruits after being barren for so long, and the revival of the Hebrew language. These are only three of the many wondrous feats that have graced us in the modern age. And although the state of Israel is still far from perfect, and often requires a deeper vision to recognize what's developing to fruition beneath the surface, despite all of the challenges that exist, our general attitude must be positive. As we acknowledge the historic significance of our generation and express gratitude to the Kadosh Baruch Hu for the miracles performed on our behalf. But once a year, we take time to recognize how much is still incomplete. As we mourn the destruction of our temple and the Jewish people's lack of complete national liberation, on the one hand, we see the goal, that amazing revolution in reality that is moving the world towards what it was always meant to be. We see the divine ideal from before creation sprouting forth as Israel experiences a national renaissance on our native soil. At the same time, however, during these sorrowful days, we remember how much of that absolute goal is still absent from our reality, how submissive our leaders behave to the demands of foreign powers, how socioeconomic injustices plague our society, how unbridgeable the gaps seem between Israel and our neighbors how rampant corruption appears to permeate our political system and how many of our people still live in exile by choice. This recognition of what is currently lacking is itself part of the appreciation we feel throughout the entire year. The true understanding of Israel's redemption can only be perceived when we're able to see where the process is going, what great historic objective is about to be attained, and how much we still have to work for its completion. This understanding of the state of Israel's deficiencies is actually what gives us the ability to value our achievements, to appreciate the foundations that have already been built. Three weeks, nine days, and then finally one day a year, we remember and experience anguish for what is still not complete and how much of a struggle still awaits us. Because of how much the world is still suffering today, and how great and amazing Israel's complete redemption will be for all of mankind, we're overcome with grief for what the world is still waiting for, that perfect ultimate rectification of existence that will bring humanity to levels of blessing and perfection beyond what humankind can even currently contemplate. And because we're now in this period of mourning for what we lost, nearly 2,000 years ago. I thought it fitting to share a class I taught about five years ago on the vilification of the Zealot movement, about those fighters for freedom who waged a heroic struggle against the Roman Empire, but lost, yet remained links in the chain of Jewish liberation. I ask that you listen to this class with an open mind and try to understand the historic conditions that led to the vilification of our freedom fighters, and even to identify 
with their worldview and what they were fighting for, so that maybe, just maybe, we can all participate in achieving it now. This is Yudah Kohen, wishing all our listeners a meaningful fast on the 9th of Av. Today, I thought we would actually take a break from what we were doing in order to talk a little bit about Tisha uh, B'Av. You know, these three weeks, right, from the... There's a story to these weeks. There's a story that, be, that essentially we start thinking about on the 17th of Tammuz and culminates in the 9th of Av. Now, the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av both um, commemorate different tragedies. Like, each one has a list of tragedies. In the 17th of Tammuz, there's a list of tragedies, and on the 9th of Av, there's a list of tragedies that we remember and fast in memory of, in commemoration of. But there's only one story they have in common. Right? And that's the major story. The story of the war, the revolt against the Roman Empire, and uh, the destruction of our national framework. Basically, f- uh, just to understand, these three weeks that we're in right now, the 17th of Tammuz, from the 17th day of Tammuz until the 9th day of Av, was bitter, bitter fighting in the old city of Jerusalem. Meaning that if you've walked, the 17th of Tammuz is the day that the walls were breached. The days that the Romans penetrated the walls of the city. The 9th of Av is the day they got to the Temple Mount. Now, for anybody who's walked from the Jaffa Gate to the Temple Mount, or to the Kotel, you know that it doesn't take three weeks to get there. It takes 20 minutes to get there. So we have to appreciate, we have to understand that for three weeks the Romans were kept back by furious Jewish fighting. Like every inch of that journey from the wall to the mount was blood. Right? Ferocious fighting through every street, every alley of Jerusalem. And one of the problems we have today when talking about this story, when remembering this story, is that we don't have a clear version of the events or of the significant issues or positions from the fighters themselves. History is often written by those who execute heroes. History is often written by those who collaborate with the oppressor. And this is a perfect example. There are things that we take for granted in the yeshiva world that aren't true about the fighters who fought for our freedom from Roman rule. And it's... uh, I bring it up because it's, uh, it's not just unfortunate. 
it's not fair to the fighters and it's not fair to us who are meant to learn from the fighters. Right? That, that their struggle is misunderstood by the Jewish world. So there's a few reasons why the struggle is misunderstood by the Jewish world. And we should probably point those out before we talk about who the fighters were and what they were fighting for. First of all, there's Josephus, right? Josephus uh, Flavius. Yosef bin Matityahu, who is the major source of information that we have of that war. We have a problem with Josephus. Because Josephus had very specific interests that we have to define when writing his history. He had personal interests. He had um, national interests, what he believed was good for the Jewish people. Remember, Josephus is not a traitor in the full sense of the word. Meaning, I do believe he betrayed the Jewish people. I do believe he betrayed the Jewish mission. And on some level, we could even say he betrayed Jewish history. But in his own mind, he genuinely believed he was doing what was good for the Jewish people. And and he basically has three, he has three interests in the way he tells the story. Now he tells the story in a way that vilifies the zealot movement. We're going to use the term zealot movement as a broad term. There's, a, there's the zealot movement, and within the broader zealot movement, which is an ideological movement, there are organizations, political parties, different factions. One of them is called the zealots. But we can't confuse the organization, the zealots, with the broader zealot movement. The Zealot movement is also, by the way, called the Fourth Philosophy by Josephus in certain places. The, uh, the Fourth Philosophy after the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Then you have the Sikari, right? So this is a movement that, according to Josephus, begins with uh, a Rabbi Yudah Haglili, like a Rabbi Yudah from the Galil, and Tzadok Hapirushi. Another rabbi, Tzadok Perushi, Tzadok the Pharisee. They create this movement, um, which basically, after um, the death of Herod, Hordus, who was like a client king for the Romans, Rabbi Yudah Haglili was likely the son of uh, Cheskiyahu, who was a freedom fighter, who, who Herod had killed, but he was an anti-Roman guerrilla uh, in the north. And the, they create, Rabbi Yudah and uh, Tzadok create this movement which Josephus some places refers to as like an ideological movement that exists along the other Hashkafic philosophical streams within Judean society. There's the Pharisees, which were made to understand is this normative rabbinic Judaism. There are the Sadducees, the Tztukim, who reject the Torah uh, Shabal Peh, who reject the oral law, only adhere to the written law. 
and are for the most part coming from the ruling class of Judea and, are, and for the most part are collaborators with the Roman occupation. You have the Essenes uh, who basically divorce themselves from the political life of the nation. They go and they live in the caves, in the desert. Uh, some of the more extreme sects within the Essene movement uh, don't marry, they only adopt children. Uh, there was probably a lot of uh, ideological overlap between some of the Essenes and the Zealots, even maybe some membership overlap with some of the Zealot movements and some of the Essenes, but uh, also early Christianity very much emerged from the philosophy of the Essenes. But the Zealot movement takes on, um, takes its power from the fact that it was expressing something that was very real and very true in the Torah and in Jewish history and in the Jewish tradition, in Jewish culture. The, the idea was basically that we have an obligation in every generation to liberate our homeland from foreign rule. And that if the Romans are occupying our land, we are guilty of idolatry every day we don't throw them out. Right? Because we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And when we say Hashem Echad, we don't mean that there's only one God, and not two, or three, or four. We mean that there's nothing but the Kadosh Baruch Hu. That there's nothing but this timeless, ultimate reality without end that we're all a part of. This soul of souls that we're all expressions of. And who also happens to be the national god of the Jews. Meaning in ancient times, different peoples had their gods, right? And when we went to battle, you know, different nations would bring their gods to battle. And the battle was really a test between whose god was stronger. That's how a lot of the ancient world functioned. Even in last week's parsha, right? In parshat uh, Matot, when Pinchas leads the Hebrew tribes into battle against Midian, uh, there's an opinion that he took the, Aron, the Aaron, right? Like he took the Ark of the Covenant with him into battle, and that's something we also see in the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, right? When we go to battle with the Philistines, we bring the Ark, because that represents our national God. It's an expression of our national God, not an idol, Chas Shalom. But uh, but Pinchas, by the way, uh, Pinchas ben Elazar is the first in the Torah to be called a Kanai, the Zealot. And the Zealot movement very much models their philosophy, derives their ideology from Pinchas. Pinchas, who receives the Brit Shalom, Pinchas receives the Brit Shalom, the covenant of peace. Because he's a Rodef Shalom, right? One of the qualities of his tribe, my tribe, right? The descendants of Aaron, HaKohen, is to be an Ohev Shalom and a Rodef Shalom. An Ohev Shalom, a lover of Shalom, and a Rodef Shalom, a pursuer of Shalom. But to understand what it means to be a Rodef Shalom, that concept I know that's a Right. What does it mean, a Rodev Shalom, a pursuer of Shalom? 
Usually in the Western world, we think, okay, shalom means peace. Usually we translate the word shalom into peace. So if two people are fighting, we make shalom between them. We make peace between them, so they're not fighting anymore. And that's the extent of how people understand peace in Western civilization. Now, that's an element of peace, right? If people are, are fighting to make peace, you need uh, to stop them from fighting. But peace is more than that. Shalom is more than that. It said that Aaron, when, when two people were fighting, whether it was a husband and a wife or two friends were fighting, Aaron Kohen would go to them, each one, and tell them how bad the other one feels and how that the other one really wants to make amends. That's, on a certain level, being a Rodev Shalom, a pursuer of peace. But Pinchas gets the Brit Shalom. He receives from the Kadosh Baruch Hu the Brit Shalom, the covenant of Shalom. Not only that, he gets the eternal Kehuna. Pinchas was not a Kohen. He was a grandson of Aaron, son of Elazar, but he was born before his father and grandfather became Kohanim. And when his grandfather and father and uncles became Kohanim, the deal was their Kohanim and their descendants afterwards would be Kohanim, like their seed was made to be, you know, to produce Kohanim, but the grandsons already born were not Kohanim. So Pinchas doesn't start out as a Kohen. He becomes a Kohen because he kills Zimri, the head of the tribe of uh, Shimon, and Cosby, the Midianite princess, while they're having relations, right, in Oel Moed. And he stops the plague. He makes shalom between Am Yisrael and the Kadosh Baruch Hu. And he's given the bridge shalom. He's given the bridge shalom because he created... A Rodev Shalom is somebody who actually... Um, identifies the obstacles to shalom. Shalom is shleimut. Shalom is perfection. Shalom is not just lack of conflict. Shalom is a situation where everything is as it should be. Where everything is functioning properly. Everyone is living in harmony. But towards positive achievement. Mutually beneficial positive achievement. According to the word of the Kadosh Baruch Hu. So somebody who's making shalom is uh, somebody who recognizes, identifies the obstacle to perfection, to completeness, eliminates the obstacle, and creates the conditions for shalom. That's a rodef shalom. So Pinchas gets the bridge shalom. Also, by the way, there's a halachic discussions on what the definition of shalom is. For example, there are opinions that um, there's a question. If you have uh, a situation of conflict, war, people are fighting, and the Jewish people have political independence in our land, that's actually called a situation of shalom. And a situation where nobody's fighting, but the Jewish people are in Galut, is not shalom. The Jewish people are in exile, not independent in our land. People are not fighting, that's still not shalom. But when we're independent in our land, when we have political sovereignty over Eretz Yisrael, even if there's fighting, that's considered shalom. So Pinchas is given the Brit Shalom because he recognizes the obstacle to the ideal, to creating the ideal situation in our world, 
and he eliminates the obstacle and he makes shalom. So he's a Rodev Shalom. So the Zealot movement sees Pinchas as the example, right? In, and by the way, even in, in the rabbinic literature of that time, in the mystical literature of that time, Pinchas is a major figure in the pantheon of Hebrew patriarchs. Like, you know, you have Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, David, Yosef. Right? Yosef is associated with the, uh, the Sphira of Yesod. So Yosef and Pinchas at the time were interchangeable. We would often associate Pinchas with Yesod. Like in the Kabbalistic literature at the time, that Pinchas was considered, was also Yesod, and Pinchas was a major figure in Jewish thought, an example that a lot of Judean society looked to as a role model of what a Jewish leader is. And we learn that Pinchas doesn't die. Like we're taught Pinchas doesn't die. And we see Pinchas is uh, around in the time of the Shoftim. And we even see Pinchas is the Kohen Gadol in the time of uh, Iftach, Agiladi. And we see, according to most opinions, Pinchas later takes the name Eliyahu Hanavi. Like Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Tishbi, Eliyahu Giladi, this is Pinchas. And he plays essentially the same role, the same function in Israeli society as Pinchas played. He's the zealot. He's the Rodef Shalom. He's the one who points out what we're doing wrong. What we need to fix in order to be Am Yisrael. In order to really manifest the divine ideal in every sphere of human behavior in every facet of national life, in order to create a mamlechet konim v'goy kadosh, in order to be an or goyim, what needs to change? That's the role of the zealot. To be a rodeh of shalom. To pursue shalom. Through identifying the obstacles and eliminating them. Right? It's a very controversial role. So it's possible, by the way, because Pinchas, Eliyahu, doesn't die it's very likely that he was not only the inspiration for the zealot movement at the, during the Roman period. It's likely that he was a participant. It's likely that he was one of the major figures leading the zealot movement. And in fact, I would say that Tanad Devei Eliyahu, which are like uh, teachings we have from Eliyahu and Avi, reflect Zealot ideology. If you want to look for the ideology of the zealots, which is hard to find because they lost the war. But if you want to find what they believed, what they were fighting for, what the war was all about for them, what Torah was all about for them, what was their relationship to the Jewish people, to the land of Israel, to the Kadosh Baruch Hu, Tanit Be'eliyahu is a good place to start. Megillat Tanit, by the way, is also accepted by many historians to be from the hand of the Zealot movement. From, uh, some people consider it to actually be from uh, Eliezer ben Harkonis. No, I'm sorry, not Eliezer ben Harkonis. Uh, Elazar ben Hanania. Excuse me. <laughs> Elazar ben Hanania was the son of the Kohen Gadol, part of the Judean aristocracy. His father was a Kohen Gadol. He himself was the commander, the captain of the temple guard, right? You know, they had like an armed force in the Beit HaMikdash. He was the captain. His father was high priest. 
At some point, he's kidnapped by the Sikari. Now, the Sikari are basically the ideological purists within the Zealot movement. They are the, led by the descendants of Yudah Glili. Rabbi Yudah Glili's son or grandson, Menachem, is the leader of the Sikari. And when he's killed, eventually, actually killed by Elazar ben Hanania, um, he is cousin, nephew, Elazar ben Yair, leads the remaining Sikari to Masada, the fortress on top of Masada, which they had already captured from the Romans months earlier. And they end up creating a kind of a commune on top of Masada until they finally have to take their own lives rather than become Roman gladiators and slaves and prostitutes and so forth. But uh, Elazar ben Hanania was kidnapped by the Sikari. And to a certain extent, it seems he absorbed some of their ideas. That because there's only one, because there's only the Holy One, the Kadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem, and everything exists within Hashem, and we're not supposed to accept any intermediaries between us and the Kadosh Baruch Hu, to accept Roman rule over our homeland, is an act of idol worship. And we have an obligation to fight until the Romans are out of our land. And this is even Nalacha, meaning the Ramban brings it, that we have an obligation. He brings it in uh, his supplement to the Rambam's Sefer Mitzvot, Halacha Dalid, that we have an obligation to fight and to free our land, to uh, not let any of our land fall into foreign hands. In every generation, regardless, Mashiach, no Mashiach, this is an obligation on the Jewish people, collectively in every generation. A Melchemet Mitzvah, a war that's obligated by the Torah, no different from when Yoshua first entered the land. And according to the Shulchan Aruch in Evan Ezer, Simon Ayin Hay, in the Pitchet Shuva Vav, it says all the Rishonim and all the Achronim hold by the Ramban, that this is the Mitzvah. This is a Mitzvah, according to the Ramban, to liberate our land. No, it's, I mean, it's really... Um, it's not uh, it's not surprising but we're fortunate that while I think most of our great Torah luminaries over the generations didn't see fit to actually write this down and make it clear to us because it was just taken for granted just like you learned Torah right? of course you have to conquer your land of course you have to have Hebrew sovereignty over your land we're fortunate today because not, not everybody's healthy enough to take this fact for granted, that the Ramban actually went through the effort of writing it down for us. You know? So, the Zealot movement is presented by Josephus as this new movement that was kind of artificial, synthetic, not organic to the Jewish people. Something new. Something that, didn't, that, something that didn't flow with our history, flow with our philosophy, flow with how the Jewish people historically self-identified, saw ourselves, conducted ourselves. And it's a very strange claim that Josephus makes. Because not long before the Roman occupation, there was another occupation, right? The Greeks. 
The Syrian Greeks occupied our land, and the Maccabim essentially behaved and spoke and thought almost exactly as the Zealots. It's essentially the same movement. I, I, I would say it like this. We talk about this concept of Knesset Israel, this giant collective soul that shines into this world through millions of bodies in space and time called Jews. Right? This one giant soul that the nation of Israel shares, that we're all expressions of. But there's a unique shade of this soul that shines into this world in almost every generation as a small minority of Jews that try to advance Jewish history forward or to fight against our oppressors when the majority refuses to. So that was the Maccabim. The Maccabim were an expression of that shade of Knesset Yisrael. And that was the Zealot movement, the broader Zealot movement in each of the Zealot guerrilla movements within the broader Zealot movement. Each of the different organizations, political parties within the broader Zealot movement were expressions of this shade of Knesset Yisrael. That doesn't mean they didn't make mistakes. Most of our heroes, if not all of our heroes, have made mistakes. It's hard to find one hero who didn't. Although we say there's some, like Yishai, the father of David, it says he never sinned. Okay. There's an example. But for the most part, everybody, David, Moshe, Yoshua, Yaakov, Avinu, like, we see that we're human beings and we have flaws and we fall and we get up. Baruch Hashem. So we're not claiming that the zealot movement was pure and blameless and flawless. The claim I am making is that A, um, they were certainly, according to consistent Jewish history, they're the heroes of the story. B, they're completely misunderstood. And they're misunderstood, I think, for very specific reasons. Number one, Josephus the major historian of that period. Josephus basically has three reasons for distorting the heroism of the Zealot movement. Number one, the Romans just won. He is now the, um, uh, the, the uh, guest adopted even into the Flavian dynasty as their historian. His loyalty is to the Emperor Vespasian, and then to Titus. And he has to write history in a way that is flattering to Vespasian and Titus. He basically has to write history from the Roman perspective, the Romans as the protagonists in the story, and not the Jews, but the Zealots as the antagonists in the story. See, this is one of the problems Josephus had to struggle with. After the war, when he's writing his histories, uh, there is a resurgence of anti-Semitism in the Roman Empire. There are people in Antioch and Alexandria who are lobbying the Roman Empire to strip the Jews of Antioch and Alexandria of their rights. The Jerusalem Temple was already destroyed. Israel lost our national framework, smashed. The leadership of the revolt, killed. Or 
maybe imprisoned in the case of Yochanan Migush Chalav, you know, one of the rebel leaders we know was uh, taken to prison and we don't know what happened in Rome. We don't know what happened to him after that. Shimon Bagiora was executed. Um, so, this is a time when Josephus had, in his mind, the responsibility to defend the Jews. Not just to defend the Jews, but to defend our beliefs in his writings. So not only does he present the Zealot movement as just a, like a bad weed within the Jewish people that was acting against Jewish beliefs, that was acting against Jewish interests. But Josephus even claims that according to the Jewish interpretation of history, Hashem was on the side of the Romans. And the zealots are the bad guys of the story. The zealots are the antagonists. And the Romans weren't the only victims of the zealots, but the Jews were the victims of the zealots. And that because this was not a war, according to Josephus, this was not a war between Rome and Judea. This was a war between Rome and the zealots, of which Judea was a victim. There's no reason to punish the Jews of Alexandria and the Jews of Antioch, and the Jews in other parts of the Roman Empire. Josephus writes his histories, especially the Jewish war, in order to defend the Jews, and to defend their beliefs, and to make clear to the Romans and to all the other subjects in the empire that the behavior of the zealots is inconsistent with Jewish beliefs, Jewish values, Jewish history, Jewish aspirations. Well, that's totally false. The claim is totally false. Because the zealot movement is a movement that most clearly uh, represents the historic aspirations of Klal Yisrael. So he has to write his history in a way that kind of takes blame from the Jewish community, the broader Jewish community, both in Israel and uh, in Palestine and throughout the empire, and also in a way that doesn't damage the status of the Jewish faith. Meaning that he doesn't want the Romans to do what they will do after the Bar Kokhba revolt, which is completely outlaw the Torah and execute rabbis for teaching it, because the Romans by then understand Josephus was wrong. That the, the Romans, by the time of Hadrian, and the time of Bar Kokhba revolt, and the time of Rabbi Akiva, by then the Romans appreciate the fact that the Torah is a book that incites the Jews to political violence to free their land. Just like today in the United States, the right wing views the Koran as a book that drives people to terrorism, in the second century, the Romans viewed the Torah as a book that drove Judeans to terrorism. Therefore, the Torah was outlawed. Therefore, rabbis were hunted for public execution. Therefore, tzitzit were outlawed. That's why we, today, till today, we wear tzitzit under shirts. Because the Romans said, no more tzitzit. And we wanted to keep wearing tzitzit, so we had to hide them under our clothes. Before that, we would wear a four-cornered garment over our clothes, and on each corner was blue and white threads. So much of our culture was altered through these Roman uh, decrees, by the way. 
So Joseph is also something else. He himself was a descendant of the Maccabim. He claims to be a descendant of the Hasmoneans, of the Hashmoneim. And if he were to present the zealots as they really were, what he would have essentially done is admit that not me, but they, my political opponents, are the true ideological heirs of my ancestors. So he had a personal interest in preserving the heroism of his own ancestors, but not allowing that heroism to be confused with the zealot movement of his generation, who he was politically opposed to. And not to allow them to claim, which they did claim, and I think rightly so, to be the true heirs, the true uh, continuation of the Maccabee movement. Now later he writes, uh, towards the end of his life, he starts to write other histories where he's a little bit softer, a little bit more nuanced. And it's said that uh, before he died, uh, Josephus wanted to rewrite the Jewish war. And it could be by then he was planning to write it in a way that was very different because he no longer had the concerns, the, the political concerns, the geopolitical concerns that he had when he first wrote, wrote the, uh, the Jewish war. So the Jewish war essentially paints the zealots as something foreign to normative, mainstream uh, Jewish thought and uh, the Jewish people because he, A, uh, did, not want, uh, did not want to be disloyal to his benefactors. He needed to show that the Romans were the good guys. B, he wanted to create uh, better conditions uh, and better laws you know, in the Roman Empire for the Jewish people. He didn't want them to all suffer collectively after the temple was destroyed and they lost the war. He didn't want the Jews all over the empire to be blamed for what the Zealots had done and, and for the revolt. And also because he himself was a proud descendant or claimed to be a proud descendant of the Hashmonaim, of the Asmonians, of the Maccabim, and didn't want the Zealots to inherit the legacy of his ancestors. He wanted to be able to preserve that for himself. Now, you have another group uh, of people, the Purushim, the Pharisees, the rabbinic leaders of the time, who on the surface at least seem to also be critical of the Zealot movement. Most notably, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who ultimately has himself smuggled out of Jerusalem by two of his students, meets uh, Vespasian and uh, makes a deal. Now, we know he met Vespasian, we know he made a deal, and even if deep down he sympathized or identified with some of the ideas of the Zealot movement, those sympathies, that identification, could not find its way into the Talmud. Because the Talmud, of course, was being censored. Like one of the reasons why in the Mishnah and in the Gemara we don't really see any reference essentially to the Maccabim or any positive reference to the, to the Zealot movement is because the Romans were looking. And after the destruction of Jerusalem, and certainly after the Bar Kokhba revolt, the rabbinical leadership was very sensitive to writing anything that could be interpreted by the Romans 
as support for revolt against Rome. That was something the rabbis at the time were very sensitive not to include. Um, although you do see certain figures like Rabbi Akiva, who is the student of Rabbi uh, Eliezer ben Harkonis, who is the student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who is very critical of his Rabbi's Rabbi for making that deal with the Romans. And he himself is not only critical of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, but he goes and initiates another revolt, the Bar Kokhba revolt, against the Romans when he becomes a Gadol Hador. And it's likely, I assume, although there's no proof for this, just like there's no way to prove, at least not yet, there's no way to prove that Eliyahu Anavi, that Pinchas, was a leading figure in the Zealot movement. There's no way to prove that Rabbi Akiva, as a young man, was a fighter in the Zealot movement against the Romans. But it makes perfect sense if you think about Rabbi Akiva's life. If you think about the fact that before the age of 40, before he started learning Torah, he not only wasn't a rabbi, wasn't only not learned in Torah, but hated the Tamerich Chachamim, hated the Rabbanim, to the point that he said, if I meet a Tamerich Chacham, I will bite him like a donkey. Not like a dog. A dog tears the skin. A donkey breaks the bone. Meaning Rabbi Akiva had strong, strong, strong animosity for the rabbis when he was a young man. Now this isn't a time, it's not like today where you have parties like Yeshatid or Meretz in the Knesset who wage you know, campaigns and, and certain figures in the media, of course, who wage like, public campaigns against you know, the Haredim or against uh, the national religious or against like, these, group, uh, these groups of Torah Jews. In the time of Rabbi Akiva, most of Am Yisrael had great respect and admiration for the Dominic Chachamim. Whether they were observant of mitzvot or not observant of mitzvot, everybody had a healthy appreciation and respect for the Torah giants. So for Rabbi Akiva, to come and say that he hates Tamerich Chachamim, he'd bite them like donkeys, indicates that there's something specific he's angry about. Now it would make sense to me that what's he angry about? The betrayal of Jerusalem. And that makes sense because when he himself starts learning Torah and becomes a giant of the generation, he goes and he corrects what he must have perceived to be the sin of the rabbis of the generation when he was a young man. He goes and he initiates a war against the Roman Empire. And uh, today, in our generation, the two major um, schools of Torah thought that exist in the English-speaking world are the Haredim and the modern Orthodox. Now, both the Haredim and the modern Orthodox have a, an interest in accepting the vilification of the freedom fighters. They have an interest in, in accepting and spreading the vilification of the Zealot movement. For the Haredim, it's very simple. The Zealots became heroes of secular Zionism, during a certain period of time, 
So the Charedim came and said, no, these aren't heroes. And we know they're not heroes because look what Josephus says and look what uh, the rabbis in the Gemara say. And just like there are secular nationalists today who we don't accept, these zealots must have been secular nationalists and look how bad their secular nationalism was. It led to the destruction of our temple. Believe me, if you really examine the writings of Josephus and the writings we have that come from the, the very few sources we have that could be from the freedom fighters themselves, Tana Develiao, Nigilat Tanit, and most importantly, maybe the Zohar Akadosh. You guys remember who writes the Zohar? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the top student of Rabbi Akiva, right? Who is also an anti-Roman agitator. Right? So these are like the so, you know these are sources that we can use to try and understand the worldview. Of the, uh, of the Zealot movement. The Zealot movement, the fourth philosophy, I think, can be categorized as, uh, in modern political terms, or theological terms, we can call it nationalist penentheism, or penentheist nationalism. That's, I think, the best way to term the fourth philosophy. So that's the Haredi world. The Haredi world has an interest in saying, no, the Zealots were bad guys. It's like secular nationalism. It's like secular Zionism. Don't be like that. Be from. As if the Zealots weren't fighting for the honor of the Kadosh Baruch Hu. As if the Zealots were not fighting for the Temple and the Torah of Israel. Uh, by the way, in his book, um, there's a book called uh, The Maccabees of Zealots and Josephus by William Farmer. And uh, he, go, he, he spills a lot of ink, proving without a shadow of a doubt that the Zealot movement was certainly, certainly motivated by a Torah ni hashkafa. They were fighting not for personal gain, like Josephus tries to claim, and not for secular nationalist reasons. They were fighting for the honor and kingdom of God. They were fighting to achieve the Hebrew mission in history. The zealots were absolutely 100% students of Pinchas, students of Eliyahu Navi. And their movement and their actions very much reflect and express the ideals and values of Pinchas Hakanai. And again, that doesn't mean people didn't make mistakes. But you cannot tarnish, you cannot vilify the entire movement. Now the modern Orthodox, on the other hand, also have an interest in accepting the vilification of the Zealot movement. And because the modern Orthodox, uh, for the most part, by and large, well, the modern Orthodox are essentially Josephus. Meaning Josephus never stopped being what we would today call an observant Jew. In Rome, he ate kosher food, he was Shomer Shabbat, he married Jewish wives, to the best of our knowledge, I think. Pretty sure. And he even considered himself to be a Navi, by the way. Josephus actually believed himself or claimed to be a prophet. And he claimed that the Kadosh Baruch Hu was on the side of the Romans against the Zealots. So, Josephus, you know, very much reminds me of certain figures that we see in the modern Orthodox world today. You know, we have, we hear, I don't want to mention names maybe, 
But over the years, there have been many political figures who are very prominent Jews, even considered observant Jews, in the United States government, whose function it was to help the U.S. government pressure Israel into giving land. Men with kippot, men who study Torah. And it's not uncommon. And uh, that's how I see Josephus. And I think the modern Orthodox, for the most part, have a an aversion to what they consider to be political extremism. Right? They they preach uh, political moderation, and when they say political moderation, what they essentially mean is we should go along with what the international community wants of us. Israel should conform, uh, submit to the demands of the United States, largely because they, the Orthodox Jewish establishment in the United States, wants to continue to feel comfortable in America and not have to deal with this conflict you know, of Israeli interests versus American interests, what's good for Israel versus what's good for America. So they convince themselves that what's best for Israel is to be a loyal um, vassal to the United States. Just like Josephus believed that what was best for Judea was to be a loyal vassal to Rome. So because uh, many of us, and probably a lot of the people watching uh, the English videos of Shurim from Achon Meir, the only access to Torah that exists in English is either Haredi Torah or modern Orthodox Torah, uh, we, we're given a very unfair and inaccurate picture of the Zealot movement. So really, you know, this season, this holiday season, this time, the three weeks, the nine days, and then finally that one day, um, we should not only try to understand, clarify what the Zealot movement is, was, but even to ask ourselves how much we identify with it. You know, one of the things that the Tanad, it, it says in the Tanad of Eliyahu, and the Ramchal brings in Misilag Yisharim. And I do consider the Ramchal and the Maharal and uh, Rabbi Yudah Levi and Rav Kook to be the ideological descendants of the Zealot movement, which would make us, to a certain extent, the ideological descendants of the Zealot movement. But one thing the Ramchal brings from the Tanad of Eliyahu in Misilag Yisharim, uh, chapter 19, that every sage in Israel who understands the Torah according to its truth, meaning there's a way to understand the Torah not according to its truth, but every sage in Israel who understands the Torah according to its truth, he grieves for the honor of Israel all his days. He grieves the honor of Hashem for the Kadosh Baruch Hu, and he feels pain over the fact that Jews live in exile, and he feels pain over the fact that there's no temple in Jerusalem. And this person who feels pain over these things, the lack of Israel's honor, the lack of Hashem's honor, the lack of a temple, the fact that Jews live in exile, the person who genuinely cares and feels pain over these things, merits Ruach HaKodesh in his words. He merits some level of prophecy, some small level of prophecy, meaning emotional attachment to the authentic aspirations of the collective Jewish people, is a prophetic power. That's how we really reach prophecy. 
by really connecting ourselves to the Klal, by really connecting ourselves emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, to the deepest, most authentic aspirations of the nation of Israel.